As we begin, I'd like to begin with a question. As you came this morning, did you anticipate to meet with God? To borrow language from last week's sermon, did you anticipate to come here to meet God? Better yet, have you met Him already this morning? Because as we'll see today, Lord willing, you don't need to come here to meet God. God's presence is not confounded to a building, rather a person. And brothers and sisters, friends who are gathered, this person, this Jesus, he knows you and he wants you to know him. So under that backdrop, let's read John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. After this, he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray you for the, the joy, the privilege to, to hear your word again. Oh, we pray that your, your spirit will, would help us to understand what John and ultimately what, what you are trying to convey. Father, we pray that your son Jesus, that he would get much glory even now, Lord. Jesus, now is your time to shine. I pray that you would get much glory for yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we'll look at the event, as we just read, surrounding Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, before we dive in, I would just like to point out that the cleansing of the temple is also mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew 
Mark, and, John, and Luke, excuse me. There's a debate over whether there are two cleansings of the temple or there's just one. Rather than diving into all the weeds, I a few others uh, lean toward there being two, two cleansings, one in the synoptics and one here in the Gospel of John. In the synoptic Gospels, Jesus cleansed the temple at the end of his public ministry, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem right before his death. While here in John, it appears that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his public ministry, after he performs his first miracle at Cana. In the synoptics, Jesus quotes scripture when addressing those who sold in the temple. According to Isaiah and Jeremiah, he says, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. While in here in the Gospel of John, we'll see Jesus uses his own words in which he says, Stop making my father's house a place of business. And we can go on with, with differences of the synoptics in the Gospel of John. The point is, let's not cross-reference too much between the specific events here in John and the specific events, specific event, excuse me, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think they're, they're, they're different, and so the, the author is trying to convey something that is, is different. And so as we look at the text, Nothing flashy for you, not amazing points, if you will, but I trust they're from the text. One, I want us to see, through God's help, that, that Jesus cleanses the, the old temple. Jesus cleanses the old temple, and Jesus shows us that, that he is the new temple. So Jesus cleanses the old temple, he shows us that he is the new temple, and, and lastly, you have your, your sermon cards. Uh, Jesus sees men's hearts. Jesus knows your heart. In verse 12, it says, After this he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. After this refers to the wedding of Cana, which we heard last week. The previous passage in which Jesus was we saw Jesus perform his, his first miracle, showing that he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. So after revealing his glory, Jesus and his family and his disciples, probably the same disciples uh, that we've seen earlier in chapter 2 and chapter 1, they head to Cana. They head from Cana, a city on a hill, and they head down to Capernaum, a city near the city of Galilee. And though, although it's on the northeast side, they, they go down because it's below sea level. And they stay there a few days. Perhaps to rest from the long wedding feast, or perhaps to get ready to, to travel again to Jerusalem. We don't know, but it says they rest. And after some time, we get to verse 13. Pass of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And it's here we get our first point that, that Jesus cleanses the old temple. Now, this is the first mention of uh, Jesus going up for the Passover. There's 
John records three, at least three Passovers, perhaps four Passovers, if you include John 5, uh, which is probably where many people get Jesus. He had uh, a two-and-a-half to three-year ministry. If you reference the Passovers. And if we remember from our study in, in Exodus, the, the Passover, it was uh, a feast of, of remembrance. The Jews were to remember the night in which God judged Pharaoh in Egypt, but passed over the house of Israel, marked by the blood of a lamb. And so Jesus is going, and perhaps the disciples in verse 17 of chapter 2 we get, they also go with him to, to remember, to, to worship God. And the text says that as Jesus goes down, he says, verse 14, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, the money changers seated at their tables. What did Jesus see? He, he found those who were selling. Notice it focuses on those who were selling and not buying, selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers. And, and where does he see them? In the temple. Now, quick word on why they were there. Those selling oxen and sheep and doves, they were there because Jews were coming from, from all over, different countries, different lands to Jerusalem. And it would be difficult to, to take your offering from your homeland to Jerusalem. And so it was convenient to, to, to go to Jerusalem and buy one in Jerusalem, buy an offering in Jerusalem. And so for many Jews coming out of town, this was a blessing to buy their offering. Not only in Jerusalem, but in the temple. What a convenience. And then you have the money changers. Why are they there? Well, every year, male Jews, 20 years and older, we're, we're told from uh, Exodus, we're, we're required to pay a temple tax, a half shekel. The only problem is uh, folks are coming from all over the, the place, from, from different countries, and so they had different currency. And so when coming to Jerusalem, they had to get their coins changed, right? So once this pandemic is over and we all decide to, to go to Europe, right, we can't go with our, our American dollar bills. We have to change currency to the euro. And so when they were coming to Jerusalem, they had to change currency, and the money changers were there to exchange their coins so they can give the proper coinage for the temple. This was a blessing. This was good. And so it seems like logical reason why they are there, but, but look what Jesus does next. Look what he does in verse 15. He, he makes a scourge of cords, a whip, uh, probably of rope used to tie up some of the animals who were in the temple. He drives out the sellers of the sheep and oxen. He drives out the sheep and oxen themselves. He pours out the coins of money changers. He overthrows their tables. He does this all by himself, causing pandemonium, causing a ruckus. No one really knows what's going on. Yet it's interesting that all while he does this, there's no mention of anyone dying, anyone being trampled over. And Jesus himself does not get arrested. 
And yet we, we, we see here by his actions that Jesus is, is angry. He's upset. But, but why? Well, it's important to remember the temple. He sees this happening in the temple. But what, what's the purpose of the temple? Well, Solomon tells us in 1 Kings that the purpose of the temple was to honor the Lord God of Israel. In fact, in 1 Kings 8, Solomon, he, he, he dedicates the temple for God and God alone. The temple was to be a place where God dwelt. It was to be a place that, that honored the, the name of the Lord God of Israel. Nothing else. It wasn't to be a place shared with other things. It was to be a place where God's people, Israel, and other nations were to come to, to seek God, to pray to God, to worship God, to be in God's presence. And the fact is, this is a place where, where they were, were doing this. It was the, most commentators said it was the, 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 the outer courts, the, the Gentile outer courts. And so uh, they had the camp set up. They had the sheep and the oxen and the doves and the money changers. Uh, where the Gentiles, other nations, were supposed to come and pray to God. D.A. Carson writes, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. The temple was to be God's meeting place with man. And yet, what does Jesus say they make the temple? After driving out the sheep and oxen and their owners, you have the money changers and you have uh, some onlookers who are, who are probably trying to scourge up the, the coins, save whatever money they can. And, and Jesus turns and he, and he looks Verse 16, to those who are selling the doves, and he says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Or some translations say a, a house, a trade, or merchandise. So why is Jesus infuriated? Why is he angry? Why is he driving out the sellers of the oxen and, and sheep, when it seems like they're doing good. They had turned a house where people were to meet God into something that it wasn't. A house of merchandise. And in Matthew 21, 13, Jesus calls the temple itself a, a house of prayer. It turned a house of prayer, a house to meet God into something it wasn't. And Jesus cares about his Father's name. Jesus cares about his Father's glory. As our brother prayed, that, that, that we would, that the people would worship God, be purely devoted to him. For holy, holy is he. This place was supposed to be set apart for God. Unadulterated holiness, worshiping him in spirit and truth. And yet, they've turned it upside down. 
And so Jesus takes this personally. And upon hearing what Jesus says, and upon seeing what Jesus does, his disciples in verse 17, they remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. His disciples, they thought back that this is alluding to to something that we've heard of the, the suffering servant of King David in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In the psalm, David is suffering, and he's doing so for the Lord's sake. His own family abandoned him. Psalm 69, verse 8. And then in Psalm 69, 9, David says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Now why? Why, why David was zealous for God's house, it doesn't quite say in the text. Perhaps as king, it was his role, his responsibility to protect the temple, to protect God's house from, from those who were trying to attack it. Uh, perhaps as, as prophet, he was trying to be a prophetic voice and, and an advocate for how the temple was to, uh, how people were to conduct themselves in the temple, and and people were attacking him because they did not like the word that he was bringing forth. David says it consumed him. It it took up his, his, his energy. He was passionate about God's house. It took up his time as he thought about it. He took it personally that people were trying to defile his God's house. And it was consumed him even to the point of death as his enemies were out to get him and after him. And yet, how much greater when the disciples heard and saw what Jesus says here in chapter 2, when they thought of that, how much greater Jesus was consumed. In fact, in the author John, he says, verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, John here is, he's looking forward. He's looking forward to when Jesus himself will be consumed for his father's house. That that he will die by his enemies for the sake of purifying God's house. And as I trust we'll see, Jesus' death is going to establish a new and better house for God's people. A new and better temple. You see, Jesus doesn't just cleanse the house. He doesn't just remove the the oxen and sheep, the, the doves. In fact, in doing so, he's foreshadowing to a a new house, a new temple. He's showing us that, that he is going to be the new temple. Look at verses 18 to 22. The Jews, probably the leaders of the Sanhedrin or the temple police, 
They heard the same commotion that everyone else is hearing. They, they hear people, they hear the, the oxen being, being driven out of the temple. They, they hear the commotion, they hear the, the, the money changers who are, who are trying to find their coins, and they, they, they go to the scene. And they saw Jesus drive out the animals, and their, their Old Testament Rolodexes might be on display. And they're thinking, is he a prophet? And so they ask him, who are you? And whoever you think you are, prove it. They ask Jesus for a sign for his authority. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? You see, they were seeking to take the spotlight off of their sin for not upkeeping God's temple, for, for allowing money changers and and uh, the uh, sellers of oxen and sheep and doves to come in, uh, they're trying to take the, the attention off of them and put it on Jesus. But Jesus, as we'll see in verses 24 to 25, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that when they ask for a sign... They're trying to deflect and take their attention off of him, off of themselves and onto him. In fact, everyone who asks for a sign, that's what they're doing, and Jesus knows that. In, in Matthew 12, Jesus had just healed a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute so that the man spoke and saw. What a sign. And, and later in chapter 12, after speaking with such authority, some of the scribes and Pharisees asked, answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, the Pharisees in Matthew 12 and the Sanhedrin here in chapter 2, they had a sign. The temple was cleansed. A blind man, a mute man, spoke and saw. And so asking for a sign was just a play. They had all the signs they needed. But asking for a sign just showed that they loved their sin. The sin hinge they loved making money in the temple. By allowing a house of trade in the temple, they showed they loved money rather than God. And see, you see, Jesus, he sees through their words it's a sign. He, he sees through their actions of a, allowing the money changers and animal merchants into the temple, which, which probably they received a profit for. He, he sees that. While they're in God's temple, they bring a mistress. You, you, you've allowed somebody else into the relationship. You can't serve God in money. And yet, while Jesus usually says, oh, you want a sign? I'm not going to give you a sign. Here, he, he says, oh, you want a sign? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple is an imperative. 
you destroy this temple, I will raise it up. The Jews, they're confused. They say in verse 20, the, the Jews said, then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you, will you raise it up in three days? Will you, whoever you are, will you raise it up? They still weren't buying who Jesus was. They were confused. The temple they thought Jesus was referring to was a physical temple. Destroy this temple. It took 46 years to build this temple, this temple that you just cleansed. Will you raise it up? The temple they were in was not the temple of Solomon. That was already destroyed during the Babylonians. It was the, the temple of Herod the Great, a renovation of a post-exilic temple in which Herod had begun to renovate. And so the temple hadn't even been, been fully built. <laughs> so the, the temple's not built, but yet you're going to, it's going to be destroyed and you're going to raise it. They, they didn't understand. They didn't have a category for what Jesus was talking about. But if Jesus could do that, then surely whatever he did with this temple, they must, he must have some authority. And yet they didn't fully understand what he was saying. So what did Jesus mean by this? Was he speaking of the physical temple or was he speaking of another temple? We could speculate on why both could be in play here, a physical temple and a, another temple. But, but let's just go what the text says. John the writer he informs us of what Jesus is actually speaking about. He says in verse 21, but, but he, Jesus, was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus' body is the new and the greater temple. You see, at the, the, the wedding at Cana that we heard of last week, there were the, the, old, the old water pots. They were used to, to clean and to wash, ceremonial washing, right, so that one would be clean and right to enter the presence of God. And yet Jesus was showing us, as we heard last week, that there's going to be a, that's gone, and there's going to be a new cleansing. Namely, Jesus' blood that was, is going to cleanse us. And, and here, the, the, the old temple is, is, is fading away. <laughs> and Jesus is the new in the greater temple where we get to meet God. And ironically, it would be the Jews that would kill Jesus, thus helping fulfill in part the, the sign that they wanted. See, the Jews, they destroyed, they, they killed Jesus. Destroy this temple. They, they destroyed, they killed him. <laughs> and in three days, I will raise it up. So they killed him and he raised himself up, thus fulfilling this prophecy. That was the sign. The sign of the resurrection. And to the praise of God's glory, Jesus rose himself up from the dead. John 10 says, For this reason the Father loves me, but I lay down my life so that I may take it back up. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own. 
And I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back. And so Jesus, his new temple, he's destroyed, as it were, and he's raised, thus fulfilling this prophecy, thus fulfilling this sign for the Jews. And friends, this morning, if you've come for a sign, look no further than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe. And live. Back to our text. While John tells us that what Jesus was referring to, Jesus' disciples weren't even sure at the time. Look at verse 22. So, so when he was raised, Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus dies, he's buried, he's raised. And it was at that moment that the disciples realized this is speaking, that what Jesus is speaking here, what is what John was telling us he's speaking of. He's speaking, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it. He's speaking of his body. They probably had the, the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit was going to remind them of the things that Jesus said. So the, the Holy Spirit probably prompted them to, to remember this saying here in John 2. And it says, uh, upon remembering it, they believed. You see, at the time, they didn't quite understand it. They were just as confused as the Jews. And yet it, it took a while, it took about two to three years, but finally they believed. And they believed what? They believed the scripture. Perhaps the scripture they're referring to here is Psalm 1610, where David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It's the same scripture that uh, Peter references at Pentecost. So Jesus raised from the dead, ah, we believe. We believe the scripture. We believe the, prophet, the prophecy of old. And not only do they believe the scripture, but it says they believe the word which Jesus had spoken. They believed verse 19. You see, they didn't understand it at the time, but after Jesus raises from the dead, it clicks. And they believe. Destroy this temple in three days. I will reason up. That is speaking of his body. Two things. Uh, lest we forget the point of the sign. The point of the sign is to remind us of the sign giver. The disciples saw the sign of the resurrection and they believed the word in Jesus' word. And because they believed his word, they believed everything else he said about himself. Namely, that he's the Christ. Son of God, which is the whole point of the book, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And lastly on this, and then we'll keep it moving, quick word to my fellow elders, fellow teachers, fellow parents. You see here, Jesus, the disciples, they, they didn't quite get what he said. 
it took a couple years before they got it. So I want to tell us that it might take a few years before we fully get what even the Lord's trying to speak to us today. Uh, parents, you might be telling your kids the gospel and they, <laughs> it don't seem like they get it. But keep telling them the gospel. If you're teaching Grace Kids tonight, it might take a few years before the kids understand who Abraham, Jacob are. It, it might take a, a minute before the kids understand <laughs> the difference between a man and a woman in today's age, or the, the glorious truths about Jesus. Oh, but keep telling. And as you tell, pray that God would give them a resurrection moment where it clicks, and they recall the scripture, and where they, they recall the words of their mommy and daddy, and their teacher, and they finally believe what you say. There might be some kids in here who don't even understand what I'm saying, but I pray that one day it'll click. And the Lord will recall to your mind this day. Back to our, our passage and the main point, uh, that, that Jesus is the, the new temple. Let, let me give you a big overview, if you will, and then we'll go to our last and final point. There's a prophecy told in Zechariah concerning the Messiah. Zechariah 6, verse 12 and 14. It says, the Lord of Armies says this, Behold, there is a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the majesty and sit and rule on his throne. So he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Oh, if that's not Jesus, the priest and the king. See, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the branch. He is the one who's branched out, as it were, and left heaven to come to earth. He is the one who, in a body, he's tabernacled, God among us. He's walked as the new temple and anyone who needed forgiveness didn't need to come to the old temple. They, they could come to Jesus and say, forgive me. Anyone who needed to speak with the priests could come to the new temple. They could come to Jesus. Anyone who needed prayer could come to the new temple. They could come to Christ. Anyone who needed healing could come to Jesus. And while on earth Jesus was consumed by the zeal of his house, he went to the cross dying a sinner's death. But on the third day, he performed the greatest sign. Jesus, up from the grave, he arose, thus raising the temple of his body. And this Jesus, we're told in Ephesians 2 and First Peter 2, that he's made the church a spiritual house or a temple where God dwells. 
So now we too, on the basis of Jesus, those who are in Christ, are the temple. And yet, as we, in this body, on this earth, we look forward to the end. We look forward to Revelation 21 in the New Jerusalem. For John, the same writer of the gospel in Revelation, wrote in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in it. Referring to the New Jerusalem. Referring to no physical temple. Why, John? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We have a new temple, church. Jesus. And so we don't need to come to a building, as it were. We come to a person. And if you have seen that your heart is far from God, if you have seen that you are like the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin of old, that you are not holy, that you do not live holy, pure, unadulterated lives of worship pleasing God, while I'm glad you came to 190 mil, it won't cleanse you. Oh, but take heart, there is a new temple. There is a greater temple. There is Jesus Christ, the new temple. And if you come to him, oh, he can cleanse you. Oh, he can make you right with God because he was the lamb that was slain. You don't need to come here and buy sheep and oxen and doves. Jesus is the lamb. Come to him. And our last point, and then we'll, I'll sit down. Jesus sees the heart of man. Now, this is a sermon in of itself. Uh, but I've been tasked to speak on it this morning. Jesus says, let's remind us in verse 20. John says in verse 23 of chapter 2, Now when he was in Jerusalem, he being Jesus, at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. See this section, verses 23 to 25, it is a bridge between the cleansing of the temple and the discussion with Nicodemus, which Lord willing we'll see next week. And perhaps Nicodemus was one of the many who believed in his name due to the signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem. And so John, is, he's looking back at, at Jesus' his ministry in Jerusalem, Jerusalem during the Passover, and he tells us what, what happens. He says, while in Jerusalem, many believed in his name. While in Jerusalem, many believed in Jesus' name. He's just capturing the point that at some point people believed. Why do they believe? Verse 24 says, or verse 23, excuse me, they, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. And so why do they believe? Because they saw the signs. And yet it gets sobering real quick. Jesus did not believe them. They believed Jesus, but Jesus did not believe them. Look at verse 
24, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. D.A. Carson says, the Greek rephrases the text like this, the people trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. As I like to say it, they believed him, but he didn't believe them. Therefore, Jesus did not invite them into his ministry. He did not share with them, yo, I'm the Christ. I'm the son of the living God. He did not tell them of what he was going to do. It wasn't his time yet. He didn't trust them. Now, why not? Why didn't Jesus trust them? Their faith. It says in verse 24, for he knew all men. And verse 25, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew all people. He didn't need anyone to testify. You see, John the Baptist, he witnessed about Jesus because <laughs> there was people who didn't know Jesus. Jesus didn't need anybody to testify about him. To testify, excuse me, Jesus didn't need anyone to witness to him about anybody because he knew everybody. I'll say it again. Jesus didn't need anyone to witness to him about anybody because he knew everybody. And he knew what was in man. He knew man's heart. He knew man's motives. He knew man's faith and what kind of faith man had. He knew those would, who would believe in him with an intellectual faith like that of demons. And so he didn't trust himself to them. This, was a, this kind of faith they had was an intellectual faith, or as some commentators put it, it was a, a spurious faith. It was a, a false faith. And Jesus knew and he recognized that. I love, give me a moment. I love what Martin Luther says, the great reformer. He wrote of this kind of faith, a young faith of such as enthusiastically accede or give in and believe, but as quickly withdraw when they hear or something unpleasant or unexpected. It's the kind of faith that says yes to Jesus. Everybody's getting saved. Oh, I, I, look at what my friends are doing. I, I want to believe too. And yet when times get hard, you draw away. It's the kind of faith that Jesus condemns in John 6, where many folks desert Jesus because of the difficult or unexpected words he says. In John 6, 64, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who betrayed him.
friends, I don't know your heart. I don't know why you came this morning. I can look and make conclusions. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows your motives for coming. Jesus knows why you do what you do, where you do, and where you do it. He knows. He knows those among us who have believed just because it's the Mid-South thing to do. And he knows those of us who are, John 1.12, believing. He can look inside a physical temple and tell true worship when he sees it. And he can look inside your heart and he can tell who is for him and who is not. He knows you and I cannot fool Jesus. This verse, for he himself knew what was in man, it's, John is alluding back to 1 Kings chapter 8, in which King Solomon, when he's dedicating the temple, says, Solomon, speaking to the Father, consecrating the temple to him, says, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and spreading his hands toward this house, the temple. Then here in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Jesus knows our hearts. But brother, how does Jesus know our hearts? Isn't he just human? How, how can Jesus know our hearts? Well, he has communion with the Father. Not to belabor the point for our time, you can check out John 8.28 and John 8.38, where it speaks of Jesus and his communion with the Father, John 8.28 and John 8.38. His communion with the Father, which allows him to, to have access into the knowledge of man. So what are we to do with that as we close? What are we to do with the fact that Jesus, he knows our hearts? Saints, come to the temple. Come to Jesus and worship This is beautiful. In case you haven't heard me, let me say it again. Jesus knows your heart. He knows that, that you are prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. And perhaps so do you. Jesus knows all the junk going on inside that you don't want to tell your spouse or your, your grace group. Jesus knows your heart. And yet, get this, saints, 2,000 years ago on a hill at Calvary, the Son of God, the Christ, died a bloody death knowing the heart of a sinner like Tommy Evans. And you can fill in your name. 
He gave his life knowing my heart, knowing your heart. He was buried and rose from the dead, proving that he was and is the new and greater temple. And he offers through himself daily access into the throne room of God, the presence of God, knowing who we are. If you're a child of God, Jesus knew your heart was so bad that you needed a new one. And so through the new covenant, he gave you a new heart. Cleansed you through his blood. And so that now you can truly worship him. And so if you can't say hallelujah out loud, you ought to say it in your heart. Jesus, the new temple, gives us the, the joy, the privilege to worship the Father by coming to him. And so saints, application, worship Worship, worship him, and keep believing. As you go about tomorrow, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're not coming here, but you can still go to the temple. You can still come to Jesus and worship him. And if you don't know this Jesus, I pray that you would come to him today, and that you would believe and live. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to wonder. Lord, we're prone to bring our circumstances, our idols, our, our comforts, and, and try to mingle them in with, with, with you and in your presence and in worship ourselves and you at the, the same time and yet you, you've called for us to, to to be holy, to be set apart. You, you've called for us to, to, to worship you in spirit and in truth. To have no other gods but you. Oh, fathers, we need help. You're a messed up people, and yet we, we, we thank you that although you know us, you know us better than ourselves, oh, you love us. I just can't get over that. You know us, and you love us. Praise you, Father. Oh, oh give us attention to, to, to not only in this moment, but, but, but throughout the week, throughout our lives. Never forget that, that who we, we are, and yet who you've made us to be in Jesus. Remind us that, that we have daily access to you in your presence no matter where we go. And we can worship you in you alone. Father, anything that I said that was incorrect, not truthful, I pray that you, you, you would get it out. And that we would remember Jesus and him alone for his glory and honor. Amen.